want to start off, bring back a good friend of our show. He's been with us several times. And uh, Marty Appel, uh, former PR director for the New York Yankees, has his own PR firm now. But uh, we want to bring him on and talk about an update to his book. We had him on about a year ago when it first came out, Pinstripe Empire. Of course, the entire history of the New York Yankees. And he has updated it now out in paperback. And uh, Marty joins us on the telephone tonight from up in New York. Marty, good to have you with us again. How are you? Thank you. I always enjoy talking to you guys, and I appreciate your having me on. Well, Marty, first of all, let me just say this, that uh, not only do we appreciate your time and, and all the stories about the Yankees and what's actually happened, but also you've been very kind to us. We've had a number of uh, different authors call us because they had talked to you, and uh, we've had some great, great guests over the years since we last talked to you, and I want to thank you for that right up front. My pleasure. Well, first of all, congratulations again, not only on uh, on the book that was out in hardcover, but the, the updated version now. I know we were talking before we went on the air. You've gotten a lot of great response, uh, uh, not only from uh, baseball fans and, and the Yankees themselves, but I guess fans on Facebook and, and on the Internet have given us a lot of great comments on the book, right? Yeah, it's been very rewarding. Uh, there had not been a pure narrative history of the Yankees in 70 years since Frank Graham did one in 1943. So uh, <clears throat> the book was kind of long overdue. Uh, I felt like I'd be a good guy to write it because I've lived much of it. Uh, I became a fan in 1955. I became an employee in 1968. So I've been connected to the team for so long that before I even got to the halfway part of the book, all of a sudden everything was clear. I didn't need to look anything up. <laughs> so <laughs> it was all right there. <laughs> Well, Marty, there are so many stories, wonderful stories, uh, looking back. And, of course, you had a, boy, oh, boy, did you have a, a treasure trove of things to go to. But what do you think uh, reacted the most to the people that read it? What, what do you think was the biggest story or the biggest surprise that when they read the book they, they had never heard of that before? Well, a lot of people today uh, have not heard of Jacob Rupert, although he went into the Hall of Fame last year. Right. But his role, he was the owner of the Yankees from 1915 until he died in 1939. He bought Babe Ruth, he built Yankee Stadium, he created the Yankee dynasty, and he was kind of a forgotten guy until the Hall of Fame came calling last year, with some people just saying, yeah, I always thought he was in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> um, but most people hadn't heard of him. And this was, <clears throat> you know, George Steinbrenner used to like to say, Buying the Yankees was like buying the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Rupert was kind of Leonardo da Vinci. He created it. So uh, a lot of people discovered him through this book, and he was a pretty fascinating guy. He was a very wealthy guy, but he had to endure first uh, prohibition, and that was his principal business, was a brewery, Rupert Beer. And then no sooner does prohibition end than the Great Depression comes, and the baseball industry is kind of just teetering and hanging on for dear life. So it was uh, a lot of adversity to in his time owning the Yankees. Well, I'll tell you, one thing about the Yankees and beer, <laughs> from Mel Allen and Ballantyne, the Ballantyne Blast, they went through I'll tell you, the New York clubs between Old Golds and Schaefer and Peels and Rupert. Yeah. And, I mean, they, 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 they're really <laughs> all connected with baseball. Well, the marriage of beer and baseball goes back to the 19th century, and uh, 
you know, fans of the game enjoy having a beer. And when television and radio came along, it was a logical sponsor. So it's been an important relationship all the, throughout the whole history of the game. Doug? I was going to say that the story about Babe Ruth coming to the Yankees, you recounted in the book so well, Marty. Uh, uh, really, the Red Sox uh, at that time, I guess the owner needed money for uh, a Broadway show. Was it Harry Frizee and No No Nanette? And that's pretty much yes. how the Babe wound up in New York, right? A lot of people didn't care much for Babe Ruth's style of play. It was not universally received as a great move. People still liked the way Ty Cobb played the game and moved, you know, how guys would move hitters around and not drive the ball out of the ballpark. They thought that what Babe Ruth was doing was really not the way baseball was intended to be played. Now, of course, he was the biggest drawing card in the game, and obviously fans did like that. But there were still what we today call purists who said, no, nah, that's, not, that's not what was intended. <clears throat> that's not the way baseball should be played. So uh, in researching the news accounts of the time, it turned out that there was a lot of opposition towards, you know, making Babe Ruth the focal point. Well, it's also the fact that uh, if a ballpark was tailor-made for Babe Ruth, it was tailor-made even today with that little alley with the wind going out. Now it's even more, it's even more of a factor to hit that ball out a little bit to the, the left of the right field foul pole than it ever was before. Well, one of the funniest things I discovered, because you dig deep in research and you never know where you're going, was Babe Ruth at one point said, yeah, I know they call this the house that Ruth built, but me, I like the polo grounds a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) That was an interesting discovery. What was it, 255 down the right field, left field line, the polo grounds? 257, yeah. 257, yeah, I remember that. (laughs) <laughs> Another thing, when, when Yankee Stadium was built, because these towering home runs were really not part of baseball, even with Babe Ruth on the scene, the foul poles in Major League Stadiums were really only like 10 or 12 feet high. And Ruth would hit them in such a high arc that umpires were baffled. They had no idea whether it went fair or foul if it was <laughs> right down the line. So he may have lost a lot of home runs, or he may have earned a lot of home runs with no benefit of the foul pole to give it an accurate measure. The thing about those great players back then, uh, not only Babe, but uh, Lou Gehrig, even uh, Joe DiMaggio for for part of it, uh, most of his career, there was no television, uh, very little radio, obviously, when uh, when the Babe played, if at all. Or I don't know if any of the games were on radio, and, and, Lou, and Lou Gehrig as well. So a lot of mythology builds up of, of these players over the years, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and I'll tell you something that what you say leads to is that for all of Mickey Mantle's greatness, one thing that's kind of unappreciated about Mickey Mantle is he was baseball's first television star. Everybody in the 1950s was acquiring a television set, and there was this handsome slugger on the New York Yankees in the World Series every fall, and America kind of fell in love with Mickey Mantle because they were he was a big television star for the game. So as much as he contributed to the continuation of Yankee history, so too was his contribution to the overall game by just winning over so many fans who were getting discovering him on TV. One of the great stories of the Yankees, of course, took place in the World Series when Gianfrido made that great catch. Uh, 
And when I say great catch, if you looked at today's games, it really wasn't that demonstrative of a catch as most people make it out to be. Uh, and I know Joe sort of kicked the dirt there when he got to second base, and uh, he didn't normally make those kinds of gestures after anything. But uh, I don't think in today's game, if, if that, that catch was made today, it would have necessarily been a groundbreaker. You guys are astute observers of the game. You know, some fans will tell you, all oh, the players, they make so much money today, they don't try as hard as they used to. Couldn't be more wrong, uh, especially since the outfield walls became padded, thanks to the insistence by the players' union. They go all out, and we expect to see those plays made, and we never expect to see a guy stop short because he's afraid to crash into the wall. So that's a very exciting part of the game that you owe directly to the cushioned walls. If you can keep it away right. from uh, Bobby Abreu, you're going to, <laughs> he's not going to get hurt hitting a wall. He's not going to be a Pete Reeser, that's for sure. Right, and uh, Pete Reeser, of course, famous the Brooklyn Dodgers, one of the great talents apparently that you know, uh, in the mid, mid-century, but forever running into walls and injuring himself and ruining his career. Yeah, if you look at the first couple of years of his career, I mean, he was head and shoulders above almost everybody else that was playing that. He, I mean, he he would just burst upon the scene. It, it, incredible, but doesn't get much recognition because it didn't last long enough. Yeah, very few people would have heard of him today, and at the time he was considered one of the great talents in the game, maybe, you know, Hall of Fame-bound player. Right, right. Marty Appel is our guest. Pinstripe Empire is the book, a new updated edition uh, just out. And uh, just a few minutes ago we mentioned, Don mentioned uh, the broadcast of the Yankees. Mel Allen, of course, uh, such a longtime voice, not only on radio but later on TV. And that also added to the uh, uh, mythology, if you will, of the Yankees, of people getting a chance to see uh, or hear Mel do the World Series every year because the Yankees run it just about every year. That, that added to the mystique, didn't it? Yeah, in those days, um, NBC always had the World Series, and they used the lead announcer on the two teams, which was kind of nice. You got to know the announcers, although, you know, as you suggest, it was always Mel, because it seemed like it was always the Yankees. (laughs) But uh, he was a terrific broadcaster, but also... For people who hated the Yankees, they couldn't stand the sound of his voice. (laughs) They were listening to the Yankees win again or something. So uh, Mel was a polarizing figure in that sense, but he was a brilliant broadcaster. His Yankee career ended shockingly in 1964, and he was only 54 years old at the time, so he could have given them a lot more years. Well, unfortunately, broadcasting, as you well know that, that's not unusual for things like that to happen. For whatever yeah. reason, uh, Ernie Harwell in Detroit, uh, well, of course, he was in New York first, but, uh, you know, he was one of the great, great broadcasters, and he saw the, at the pizza pie business, didn't like him. So, <laughs> But he finally did get back. But the voice of baseball still is a big factor with every team. Yes, that's true. And there was a time that every team had, like, a broadcaster bigger than the players, uh, a bigger celebrity. You could say almost every club had somebody like that. Today it's really not so much the case. But, um, again, like we talked about beer before, the link between the broadcasters and the fans to the team has a very, been a very important one for decades. No question. No question. Doug? Yeah, I miss those days. Uh, 
Marty, uh, when you had at least the, the three broadcasters, one guy would do the radio, and then uh, the other two would kind of switch off and do TV. I know the Yankees had that for so many years with Frank Messer, Bill White, and Phil Rizzuto. Right. The Mets were their three, Lindsey, uh, Ralph Kiner, and Bob Murphy. Uh, unfortunately, those days are gone, too. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, the Yankees don't even have their current broadcasters pictured in the Yankee yearbook. <laughs> Is that right? In the days when I was... Yeah, that's right. And in the I don't days, think they'd I have enough pages to put them in, would they? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just not, too not hard. A, to not get as them any all. negative. I'm not. I'm not negative no. about any one of them. But I, I just, to me, I have a very tough time associating with all the, you know, so many different uh, voices, uh, whether it's radio or television. Uh, and and when you watch a Yankee game, you just don't know who's going to be on. You don't know who's going to be on, but. Uh, at least speaking for myself, because I do watch a lot, you know, I, I can tell the voices. I know who works better with who. I know that when Al Leiter is on with David Cohn, there tends to be a redundancy. I don't know why they have the two pitchers on together. I agree. But, um, yeah, but it, 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 it is interesting to just follow the broadcast lives of, uh, of the different teams. What are some of the updates, Marty, since uh, the book came out in hardcover? Uh, and what, what are you, yeah, what are you kind of well, uh, the softcover edition just out includes the 2012 and 2013 seasons, neither of which were championship seasons, but thank you, A-Rod, and thank you, Mariano, for providing so much interesting and emotional copy, um, one positive and one negative, of course. With A-Rod, you know, we go through what history demands on all his uh, errant behavior. But um, open is the question of whether Alex Rodriguez is the best third baseman in the history of the Yankees, which is an interesting subject to uh, debate. I mean, his performance is now tainted, but he did win two MVP awards. No other Yankee third baseman ever won an MVP award. And he led the league in home runs one year. And, uh, you know, statistically, he just runs head and shoulders over Greg Nettles and Cleet Boyer and, uh, you know, every everybody else who ever played third base for the Yankees. Uh, so it's an interesting debate, as is whether Robinson Cano is the best second baseman in the history of the team, where you did have two Hall of Famers in Tony Lazari and Joe Gordon. So all just good matters of debate. And uh, talking about Hall of Fame, how did you rate uh, Phil Rizzuto uh, over the course of his career for the Hall of Fame? Um, Phil himself, and I, for a time I was the producer of the Yankee game, so I was very close to Phil. And he honestly didn't see himself as a Hall of Famer because he said, oh, that's for guys like Matthewson and Johnson and Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. That's not for me. But when he saw other guys going in, especially shortstops who he thought he was as good as, you know, then his feelings would get hurt if he didn't get in. He never wanted to say that publicly. But when uh, you know, Louis Aparicio or Luke Appling and Pee Wee would go in, he would feel like, oh, I'm just as good as those guys. And finally, I was with him the day he did go in, and when... How many times do we get to be with somebody on the day they go into the Baseball Hall of Fame? So that was a tremendous day for me in my life, and just very emotional to see Phil genuinely appreciate it and, you know, tear up and just get so emotional about it. Right. 
How about uh, give us a little bit of an update on Yogi? Because I know uh, he hadn't been in the best of health, and of course his wife passed away. And uh, how's he doing? He's doing okay. He just turned 89. He's living in an assisted living facility. And uh, he goes to Yankee games. He's been to, I think, three this year. He gets a real lift when he goes there. He doesn't go out where people can see him. He goes, he's in the clubhouse. He's in the manager's office. And everybody comes in to greet him and say hello. And he talks baseball with Joe Girardi. And it just, you know, it really makes his day. He's still on top of his game mentally. Uh, he's all there. He's got no illnesses other than he's 89 years old and slowing down. But uh, whenever you're in his company, you feel better about life. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, it's just an amazing story when you when you think about it and, you know, where he came from in St. Louis and how he got to the Yankees. And, <laughs> and, and He and, is the greatest generation all in one. You know, he was I, I agree. Yeah, he's the only major ball player at Normandy. Uh, he fought at D-Day. Uh, he exceeded expectations at every turn. He became a genius in his field, even if he only had a seventh-grade education. And, you know, who would have expected that Yogi Berra would have a museum named for him someday? People right. thought he was a punchline, that he drank Yoo-Hoo and read comic books. And it turns out <laughs> to be that the museum honors his character and his integrity and all of those positive things. He is the greatest generation. I'd have to agree. Doug? Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, Marty, uh, great to have you on with us again. Again, the name of the book is Pinstripe Empire. And uh, give it a website, Marty. I know all the book sites probably have it. Do you have uh, one you want to direct people to? Um, it's featured on my own website, which is com. A-P-P-E-L-P-R dot com. And there's a tab there for books, books I've written and books I've done PR for. It's kind of an interesting page. Marty, one last question from me, and that would be uh, you were there at the beginning of Jeter. And, of course, yep. uh, a lot has been written and said about Jeter. And first time I really saw anything negative was yesterday in a post when I said that he was getting a little bit, uh, uh, you know, within himself about, you know, this last year and the tour around. Uh, I, I, to me, I, I think he's what baseball is all about. I, I, I just can't think of a negative thing to say about the guy. Baseball has been blessed to have him. Uh, that thing in the post was not, it was a guest column by a, a, a right. Mets fan. <laughs> you know, so, uh, for Derek Jeter, you have to say he's been the face of baseball all these years, including the years that will be remembered as the steroid years. Right. And Derek Jeter has always been the face of doing everything right. And for that alone, he's as important as Babe Ruth was, who followed the gambling scandal of the 1919 World Series and the Black right. Sox. So I never knew a player that was in the right place at the right time, more times in 20 years, than Jeter. Yeah. Ah, he's just wonderful. And uh, what an asset to the Yankees to the national pastime itself, and even to America, all he represents. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much again, as Doug said, Marty, and I uh, hope every couple of years we can touch base with you, touch back, talk about some of the uh, updates in your book, and, and more importantly, uh, whatever new you're doing. Thank you, guys. 
I'm Stan Brock. 30 years ago, I formed Remote Area Medical to help people overseas. But then we found generations of families in America isolated by poverty from the health care they need. Together, we can take dental, vision, and medical help to a million adults and their kids right here at home in the United States of America.